This is Sound Lives, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and you're listening to Terry Lynn Carrington's Mosaic Triad from her 2011 album, The Mosaic Project released on Concord Jazz. I'll be talking with Terry Lynn Carrington about touring her current band, Social Science, her love of many different musical styles, playing with jazz icons since she was 10, and her work to address inequities in music through the Berkeley Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice, as well as New Music USA's newest program, Next Jazz Legacy. I know you've recently been touring Waiting Game, which must feel a little strange to tour a record that's two years old, but the last two years have been even stranger, right? Well, I mean, it doesn't feel weird because, I mean, I could keep playing that music far after the record is kind of technically not new anymore because the themes remain relevant and the musicians are very creative. So, you know, we find different things and we keep letting the music evolve we're working on some new music now as well. So we'll probably put in new music, but keep some of the old music too. So it's, it's okay to still tour that record. I would love to hear this music live. You know, I'm used to it from the record and there's a lot of stuff about it that's about production, about being in a record. So I'm very curious about what it's like live. Well, it's impossible to duplicate it exactly, of course. You know, we take a lot more liberties live uh, like any band you know the mood changes sometimes some songs are a little faster or slower than others sometimes we keep trying to make it fresh for ourselves i guess yeah sometimes we have different guest artists so that makes a difference too but we try to capture the spirit of the record without exactly duplicating it in fact it would be awesome to have a live album of of this group just to hear you know you stretch out on on various things Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, I'll think about that. (laughs) I'm just starting to re-enter going to concerts again, only in the last few weeks. It's still kind of a surreal thing being out again amongst people, but hopefully everywhere you're playing is being very safe and cautious with everything. Yeah, we can only hope, you know, it's just kind of daunting to get back out there. You know, you're just kind of hoping for the best and hoping that everybody is honest you know truthful and and cautious and careful and you know you feel like your life is at stake almost just you know to work so it's a little crazy right now but you know we'll get through this somehow i actually got it on lps which i'm so thrilled that that you issued the lps and i know on cds it really is parsed into two discs and dreams and and desperate measures gets its own cd and Mm -hmm. it's almost like it's two different albums in a way and on the vinyl you know that only gets one side so that there's room for everything else i was a little disappointed that there wasn't a fifth side but you know what can you do Uh, i know i yeah i i didn't make those decisions of course not (laughs) i just kind of rolled with how people wanted to do it but I, I wonder, you know, having these kind of two very different statements in terms of a live gig, it's almost like it's two sets by two different bands, which 
is the same band because the music is so different. I think it really points to the diversity of the musicians and um, most jazz musicians I know are diverse musically. And for so long, we've been told to stay in a box and do projects that are more easily marketed. And I believe in themes, but I also believe that the themes don't have to be narrow. I just had the idea of wanting to do a you know improvised album you know, along with you know the produced songs. What's so wonderful about it is in a way it's sort of two roads in. Maybe people who are more into the heavy improv stuff will latch onto it to it that way and and hear the sort of more popular sounding songs and vice versa. The people who hear the songs will hear the stretch out long form music and, and get into that. Exactly. I mean, that's partially what I thought as well. I mean, initially I just had the idea I wanted to do it because, you know, I felt it represented the band well. And then, you know, my second thought was, like you said, it's two ways in. Those songs, they're so topical. They were so topical to the moment that album was released and for better or worse, probably worse. I mean, good for the record, but bad for our society. Those things haven't gone away at all. In fact, they've been magnified. Exactly. Yeah, I have some friends that say it's almost like you predicted, you know, the moment and what was going to be happening because we started writing that material in 2017. But I think it just speaks to, yeah, I mean, of course, they haven't gone away, but also the to go back, you know, that they've always been there. A lot did not change, but in 2020, a lot of things you know, came to light and uh, there were you know, more people seemingly concerned. You know, we were so much more able to be in our bubbles. You know, good people that just moseying on with their life. And, um, I mean, I could be guilty of that as well. I am guilty of it. So there's so much you know, privilege that we have as musicians to be able to pursue you know, this dream of being creative for a living and not always dealing with some of the more mundane matters of life that many people have to deal with. So I think it was you know, a good wake up call for everybody people that are conscious and people that are unconscious to really look at our society the way that it is and not through rose colored glasses. My favorite of the songs on the album, Pray the Gay Away, such a powerful, powerful song. And part of it is it's, it's sort of has got this energy and it seems happy, but it's anything but happy. You know, it's like talking about a horrible reality in our society. And I wonder if a song like that, if the idea is to change people's minds who hear it, you know, who might, you know, have a skewed view of what human, what humanity should be, or if it's for people who already are of the same mind and somehow hearing this will be a call to action for them. Well, I think music is for both. You make an artistic statement, you put it out there and different people are going to hear it and experience different things. So it's for both sides, you know, people that hopefully hear it and start to think a little differently 
And this song doesn't have a lot of lyrics, but it has, you know, spoken speeches and that kind of thing that tells you what the message is. And the underlying message is really in the bridge, the trumpet solo bridge part, where it says, pray the hate away. We need to pray the hate away. And that's really the underlying message. I think, almost think it's more powerful as an instrumental piece with the clips in there, the spoken clips in there, without trying to construct the lyric other than, you know, the hook. People are going to come to any of these issues differently, right? They're going to come in there wherever they are at the right. time. So it's, it leaves a bit more of an open door and a, you know, an open palette for people to discover maybe what they need at the moment. I don't know if it's about changing minds because most people that are hateful, you know, it's maybe a little difficult to change their minds. If you're just ignorant, then it might be easier to educate, you know, with satire and the, the hook. You know, at first when I wrote it, some people thought that I was saying to pray the gay away. And I was like, wow. So, okay, let me, how do I reinforce? And that's when we added the bridge as you need to pray the hate away. Wow. Just to make sure, yeah, people didn't misinterpret it. That's why, you know, commercial art, it kind of just tells you everything. That's what it is. But I think creative music, you have, you know, a way to leave more for interpretation. More ambiguity, more yeah. subtlety, more. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let's listen to a bit of Pray the Gay Away from Terry Lynn Carrington's album Waiting Game with her group Social Science and featuring MCs Radar Ellis and Casa Overall released on Motema Music. something like this, it makes a powerful statement the first time you hear it, but you get more and more out of it the more times you listen to it. I mean, I have to confess, I didn't catch the Pray the Hate until like second or third time in. The first mm -hmm. time around, I was listening on a surface level and hearing the tunes and hearing the hook and not distinguishing. The way people take music and if they're hearing it in a place and they're not completely focused on it, maybe they're not going to catch all the words or they're going to catch part of something but when you return to it you have this deeper relationship with it yeah and that's also why i think it's important to write good music <laughs> you know messages are great but it's the music itself i think that's going to make someone return to it you know the music and the marriage between lyric and music but if you just look at the lyrics of any song on paper without hearing the music it could be amazing poetry that you want to reread, but for the most part, you know, it's the marriage with the music that, that makes you keep returning to it. Because if it's crafted well, constructed well, you are able to hear different things every time you listen. And, and that's the kind of music I like. So I try to produce in that way as well. 
thinking an album like Waiting Game, it plays on so many different genres and it seems like a culmination of stuff you've been doing. I'm thinking back to the Mosaic Project, which is really all over the map stylistically in a wonderful way, but it somehow all holds together even though it goes through so many different kinds of music. And maybe this You're idea- You're talking about the first one. The very first, yes, exactly. Thinking about going from transformation, which clearly begins with a jazz groove. And then the last track has a hip hop vibe, Sisters on the Rise. But then there even there's that incredibly beautiful, vulnerable cover of Michelle, the Beatles song. I'm floored by every time I hear it, how that voice enters unaccompanied and just is so vulnerable. Oh, thank you. I've been accused my whole life of being all over the map. So what I've tried to do in these later years, starting with the Mosaic Project, is to try to pull influences together in a way that feels cohesive to people listening. You know, before Mosaic Project, I didn't quite maybe know how to do that exactly, but you know, that's been my goal. And hopefully I've, I've done it on at least some of my records. <laughs> and um, I, I, you know, I believe in themes, but I can't help it. I was, you know, born in the sixties and have always kept um, just, you know, an open heart to all these different genres. You know, I always felt there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. Yeah, that so. wonderful Ellington quote. Yeah. <laughs> good music and the other yeah. kind, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Why wouldn't I let it all influence me? And I never really had, a, well, I did in my first album with a major label deal. But after that, you know, I didn't really have major label deals. So, you know, I had the freedom to try to you know, let myself out of any boxes that I might have fallen into. What's so interesting is a lot of people kind of misinfer and think of jazz as a style, but jazz is really an approach. It's an approach to performance. Any piece of music can be reimagined as jazz. And then when you say jazz, well, what is that imagined as jazz? I mean, it could be it could be swing, it could be bop, it could be free, it could be fusion, it could be all, it could be somewhere in between all of these things and then something totally different. But it's about the personal expression of the interpreters in the moment. Well, I agree 100% with what you said. Um, I never actually said it like that. You know, like I never actually thought about it as style in that any music can be interpreted as jazz, which is true. I do feel that there's other things that make it jazz. Um, even if you're not playing those other things, it's like to know that somebody actually, you know, studied through this history, you know, went understood swing and bebop and post-bop. And it's a long time to master those things. So like, you know, a, a pop musician that didn't study any of that could also like approach something like jazz, but I'm not sure I would call it jazz if I can't hear any history or lineage and what they're doing. So I think there's that element too. It's because, you know, there's a historical and cultural context that uh, the music was born from. And I think, you know, that has to be acknowledged as well. And then there's all of the incarnations and uh, the evolving nature of it it's kind of like you have to know all of the history before you can change it there's a lot of work you know involved with all that 
And so jazz musicians, um, they sacrifice you know, a lot because it's much easier to choose not to do all that. Be a technician if you're you know, playing classical music, you know, you're interpreting things too, but basically you have to you know, really play your instrument well and read well. You know, and rock and pop, you know, is is more connected to whatever's happening at the time, which the masses tend to gravitate to. And jazz has always been the harder road because the masses have really, I mean, I guess in the 20s and 30s, it was popular music, 40s maybe too. So yeah, maybe the masses at that time gravitated to it, but as jazz evolved, the masses have not gravitated to it. It's a, a decision, you know, that you make. It's a harder road to travel, for sure. Well, in the 20s through the 40s, let's say, jazz was in this constant dialogue with the popular music of that time. You know, the famous pop songs, Broadway, show tunes, movie tunes, and took that to another level, you know, even through, say, to the 50s and 60s. You know, John Coltrane playing My Favorite Things took it you know, to this other zone that it was never in, in The Sound of Music. I mean, it's a great song in that show, but he took it, he, he turned it into you know, like a symphony. <laughs> you know, he turned it into like a late Beethoven quartet. Unbelievable. But it was that dialogue. And I think maybe you know, there's something well, that happened in history where there isn't this dialogue. And the fact that you are dialoguing with the popular music of our time and even the songbook of rock and roll of the last 50 years. You know, I brought up Michelle, but on this trio album that was released just last year with Tim Ray on the piano, you did Painted Black of the Rolling Stones. And that totally works as a standard. Yeah, that was Tim's idea. That's his album. I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> but I hear your point is that as far as the dialogue part, that's true, you know, what you said, but also I think rhythm was important. Swing era, it was popular because it, I don't think it was because it was in dialogue with Broadway songs and all that. I think because for most of those big bands were writing original material, but it was the fact that you could dance to it and it was in the ballrooms. And when it moved from that being a danceable form, like they went to move and dance to it, then it moved to, um, the concert hall where you sit and listen, that changed things to some degree, you know. Of course, when that happened, even more dialogue started happening you know, with the popular show tunes and all that. But the point for me really is that jazz musicians have always been on the cutting edge of creative music, the cutting edge of personal expression through music, having, you know, often the most tools in their toolbox, which can, you know, actually be a detriment if you're trying to, you know, be popular. Let's listen to Terry Lynn Carrington's version of the Lennon-McCartney classic Michelle, featuring vocals by Gretchen Parlato, Terry Lynn on drums, Esperanza Spalding on bass, Jerry Allen on piano, and Ingrid Jensen on trumpets. Michelle, my these are words that go together well. I love you. I love you. I 
Now, in terms of being open to all of these styles, I mean, your life story is so interesting because you kind of grew up immersed in jazz. You know, your father, saxophone player, your grandfather, he wasn't around when you were born, but his drum kit was, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was kind of this presence from the moment, from the moment you were born. And to be so immersed in that tradition, but then to be so open to all kinds of music, I think is a very interesting thing mm -hmm. for you. Jazz was in my house, it's my father's music, right? It's my music too, but it's really, you know, his music is what he grew up with, it's what he played all the time. But I also had friends and, you know, I was in high school and junior high school and listening to Earth, Wind and Fire and uh, Michael Jackson and anything else that was popular at the time. So I can't ignore those things. People can't just tell you to choose. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all part of my experience. So I think well, that's what's making jazz so interesting to me these days. Once, you know, it, labels kind of got out the way and people were able to uh, be independent, produce and release the music that they really wanted to, what was really in their hearts. I feel uh, like it opened things up and it's such a creative and fertile time uh, for jazz. Like in the 80s, it felt a little mm, not as creative and fertile. You know? So uh, I really appreciate, even though it's kind of sad in some ways for some people that you know the labels have disappeared and the music has changed, they never got paid you know, very well anyway with labels and royalties and all that, you know, a few did, but now with streaming and people are always talking, you know, belly aching, or that's not really the word, but about what's happened, you know, with streaming and all of that. But I think it's made an extremely creative time for a lot of people and it kind of levels the playing field, you know, for so many people. And then you either sink or swim. I'm totally into, you know, how the industry has shifted and we all get used to it and we're back to having to play to make a living, you know, you can't make a living, that's the average person from selling records or being a studio musician. I think it's, you know, it's an exciting time, you know, it's a new frontier and, and we're all able to figure it out. There'll always be the haves and the have-nots and the people that are more privileged than others. But there's also an opportunity there. Of course, the hard problem is over the course of the last 18 months, it was almost impossible to play live in front of an audience. Exactly. But we did start to figure out streaming more. And that needed to be done you know, right. as far as live concert streaming and live performance. And it also globalized things more. That's definitely true. Like, could check out concerts happening and Estonia and Hong Kong and you know <laughs> it's like amazing but the other part of it is is there's still no great answer on how to monetize all of that and it's still a lot of people were giving these concerts and you know they're free so how are you going to be able to survive doing that I think that's the part that we're figuring out there were some people making some money too though you know maybe this is there's a new standard that will be created from streaming uh, concerts that's yet to be proven but i think the pandemic you know made us be resourceful in that way also even if you did end up 
streaming things for free, if you were able to reach people uh, all over the world, and that was something you weren't necessarily doing as much of before, then it also gives you opportunities down the road. So I'm not saying that exposure is enough, but I'm saying that it all starts to come together. I mean, I've done a lot before the pandemic. I mean, I've done a lot of free things. It's all putting me in a, a place that, you know, that more people can ex experience whatever it is I'm thinking or playing or doing. And it all works together in the end, you know. The way I look at it, I mean, I'm a, I'm a nut, but some people still buy albums. I still buy albums. I'll hear something streamed on some service. And if I like it, I want to have it because I want to be able to listen to it on better speakers. I want to be able to listen to it and not have my computer on. Because when my computer is on, I'm working. But when music is on, I'm transported to another space. But you are not the normal person, meaning that's a small group. But the good thing is if you can get to more of that small group in, in other countries, then it, it's still uh, better you know, for you as far as presenting, whatever you want to call it, high art or high quality music for to what do they call what, audiophiles and yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> so, but i want to i want to take it back to that you know deciding to play the drums you started out playing saxophone and moved to the drums and you also play piano and to this day when you write music you write at the piano so i'm curious about the different modalities in terms of the different parts of your music making the composing the performing and how those evolved for you from your earliest time? Yeah, I would never say that I play piano. I do write <laughs> on keyboards. Uh, I used to write on piano and then have a pencil and write it out on paper. You know, once I started understanding how to use computers, I started writing. And I mostly write on just a small little two octave keyboard because I can travel with it. What's helpful is I can hear the sounds that I'm writing for. So that's very helpful in the process. I only, you know, went to Berkeley for three semesters, I believe, yeah. So I, I didn't study composition too much. I mean, I took a couple of arranging classes. Most of it's been trial and error. And knowing that and trusting that what I hear is okay, you know, and, and figuring out what it is I'm hearing. If I could just hear something and then you could just hear it, that would be amazing. You would hear all kinds of things, <laughs> you know, if we could, through telepathy or something. But uh, since that's not possible, I have to figure out how to get what I'm hearing in my head out. That process is really what all musicians do, because I, I imagine that most musicians are hearing their own symphonies, but everybody has the barrier between what they're hearing in their head and what they're able to actually produce. And it's interesting. Some people have more of a barrier than others. It might take longer or it may never come out the way they hear it in their head. You know, they may never reach that place. And, and other people know so much that they stop hearing in their head and they just go to what they know. So it's kind of finding that balance. Because if I sit down to the piano, I tend to play, start to play the same chords over and over because I'm not a pianist. So it's much better for me to just not do that and hear the music in my head and then sit down and figure out on the keyboard what those notes are. The drum set, in a way, 
is kind of an orchestra under the control of one player. There are so many different sonorities of the mm -hmm. different instruments, of the cymbals, of the drums, and the way you hit it, and the way you phrase it, that in a way, one could theoretically think of a whole ensemble from the drums, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, but that ends up being a percussion ensemble. You know what I mean? It ends up, it's definitely like an orchestra, and, and that's what I try to do, orchestrate on the drum set when I play. If I were doing a session, my goal is always, if I were doing a session and you took away, you know, you muted the other instruments and you're just hearing the drums, that it's still engaging. There's enough colors and orchestration there that it's still engaging. But no matter how you slice it, you're not able to hear chords and uh, you're you know you're limited with the tones but rhythm is so important and underrated well i can't say it's the most important of the elements of rhythm and, and you know melody and harmony but it's really important yeah it's, i'd rather have something great rhythmically than something great melodically or harmonically if I had to choose, you know, because it's what really, I mean, it's what makes you dance. Even the rhythm of harmony and melody, somebody played the piano by themselves or a horn by themselves and you start, you know, grooving to it, it's because, you know, there's being rhythmic. Rhythm is this kind of foundation. But it's interesting that there have been so many drummers in the history of jazz who've led ensembles and have done like amazing transformative things. I mean, the two things that come to mind immediately, canonically, or Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers is like generations of players went through that. That was like jazz university for like generations. But then Max Roach, you know, first with the quintetti co-led with Clifford Brown, which, you know, really kind of gave the blueprint of what a modern combo is even to this day in some quarters. But mm -hmm. later on with like, freedom now we insist the freedom now suite that is like one of the most powerful records ever made and just like for me one of the greatest statements of the civil rights era he's a drummer but he envisioned that whole thing right well he's a drummer with vision yeah <laughs> he's a, pro a producer and a composer i mean max composed you know he could sit down to the piano and play much better than me you know he had all of those things going on i think there's a myth that uh, drummers are just, are just dealing with rhythm. You know, most of the great drummers are also dealing with melody and harmony and, and can play, you know, other instruments. So many, you know, and some can't, but just because they can't play it doesn't mean they don't know its function, know exactly what it's supposed to do and how to write for it. Max Roach's solos are melodic. Yeah, he's the, the most melodic yeah. drummer yeah. of his time, period. Yeah. Yeah. This takes me to another whole era, area, the whole question of role models and finding role models. Obviously, you know, before you were born, Max Roach and Art Blakey were these iconic people. I'm wondering how you found role models and, you know, role models are important for whatever endeavor we do, but particularly for music and particularly for jazz, which is so collaborative to have mentors and role models. The key to my success, I think, my biggest mentor and role model starting off, you know, with my dad. His relationships with literally everybody 
And jazz really um, gave me access, literally and figuratively, to the jazz stage. Without that, I for sure you know, wouldn't be where I am now. Because of his relationships and the trust that musicians had in him, uh, they gave me a chance. And also, once they saw or heard my potential, they nurtured it. I find it almost impossible for anybody to be successful without that. A lot of women don't have that opportunity because they, they just don't have the access. It can be difficult for them. And a lot of women quit early, you know, because it's just not fun. And they want to go through the extra steps. And why should they go through, you know, the extra steps of extra, you know, ridicule or less support, just all the, you know, things that make it difficult to thrive, you know, just to relax and play and just hone in on your craft. It seems like there's always, you know, been a bit of a nurturing environment for men to be creative and uh, women just never had that, that same support. Those roles are, uh, you know, and, and that way of thinking, of course, it's changing and it's what we're trying to dismantle because it's still there, even though it's changing. And it's difficult to get people to think differently when for so long things have been presented a certain way. The shocking thing is, you know, we talked about um, Max Roach, he was the drummer on Money Jungle, that amazing trio album, Duke Ellington, that you recreated and won the first Grammy as a female jazz instrumentalist for best album. That was only seven years ago. I mean, it's a great album, uh -huh. but hell, you know, like Mary Lou Williams never won a Grammy. Carla Blay yeah. never won a Grammy. You know, Joanne Burkeen never won a Grammy. I mean, what's what's up with that? Jerry Allen. Jerry yeah. Allen, totally. You know, why didn't the nurturer win a Grammy? Or even be nominated. Exactly. <laughs> Let's listen to a bit of Grassroots, one of Terry Lynn Carrington's original compositions from her 2013 Grammy award-winning album, Money Jungle Provocative in Blue, featuring Terry Lynn on drums, Gerald Clayton on piano, and Christian McBride on bass, also available from Concord Jazz. So in terms of finding role models, if you're a woman trying to enter this music, where do you look? I mean, I'm writing a piece right now that, that's titled, Everything I See Says I Shouldn't Be Here. That's the reality. So it comes down to your identity. If you're looking for something that reflects your own identity as a woman, then you probably wouldn't see it. You're starting to now, but I'm going back like when I came up. It's still now, but I, I just mean it's better now. Like I didn't see any women playing drums other than Dottie Dodge and 
when I was younger. And then when I got to college, I think Cindy Blackman was the next person because she was at Berkeley when I got there. She's a few years older than me. Otherwise, there was nobody to reflect on that. And then to move forward 40 years later, and it still be, you know, slim pickings, as they say. If I turn on the radio, I don't see myself represented. If I look at advertisements and or flip through magazines, music magazines, I don't see myself represented. If I felt I needed that support, then yeah, it's going to make me shy away from wanting to pursue this. I think the key for me was that I didn't need to see myself represented because I had no identity when I started. Like I didn't think, oh, I'm a woman playing drums. I was, I was a kid. I had no identity, gender identity, basically. When I mean, people told me, oh, you're good. Oh, you're a girl. Oh, you're good for a girl. Or they made that association, but I didn't because I just didn't, I didn't feel like a little girl. I didn't feel like a little boy. I just didn't know, you know, I was right. just, just playing, you know, and I gravitated to kind of tomboyish things. So I had no problem inserting myself with boys. So establishing the Berkeley Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice, mm -hmm. that obviously is about creating a space for having mentors, for having role models. You didn't need them, but so many other people do. Exactly, because I was kind of ignorant to all of the real stresses and problems that young women were facing. I mean, if you're just going by your own experience, I was like, yeah, you just shoulder it and trudge on and plow through and make it happen. And I can only hope at this point that I didn't discourage you know, any young women. I think I did discourage a couple with that kind of attitude, you know, because I was only going by my own experience. But once I opened my heart to other people's experiences, I understood, oh, yeah, mine wasn't normal. And everybody's not going to be like me, nor should they. So well, one of the things I'd love to unpack in this and try to think deeper on is there's there's a tagline for the program that talks about dismantling the jazz patriarchy. And I wanted to talk about what that might mean in terms of the music sounding different, of the evolution being different. Are there certain things inherently in the music, you know, whether it's trading eights or having, you know, a blowing session, you know, between Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane, Tenor Madness is, you know, is that like an inherently male way to do things? Is that a form of mansplaining, if you would? Well, I mean, the, the tagline line is jazz without patriarchy. And it's really just pointing to the desire to have not just jazz, but a society without patriarchy. If you look at the history of patriarchy, it's caused a lot of problems. Yeah. But in answer to your question, we look at gender as a social construct, right? So those are like cutting sessions, right? So many of these um, killing it and cutting each other and, you know, play hard, strong, loud, fast. There's a lot of masculinity that's made the sound of the music, made the music what it is. I love what it is. I also, you know, possess some of that though. If I'm going to go on stage, like uh, for instance, when I was young, 10 years old, and I played with Eddie Lockjaw Davis, you know, my dad said, now when you get up there, 
you call you um, kick him in the ass. So I'm 10 years old saying, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kick Eddie Lockjaw Davis in the ass. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I, I didn't shy away from that. And when I met Buddy Rich, the same exact time when I was playing with Eddie uh, Lockjaw Davis when I was 10, you know, when I met him, he was in a bad mood. He said, you better not be any good. <laughs> and I, I said, well, who's going to stop me? And then he took a liking to me because he didn't scare me. You know, he... <laughs> He's like, hey, you want to come play with my band? Wow. So what I'm saying is um, that thing, I tend to call it a warrior spirit. That thing that you're talking about is inherent in a lot of men because society has demanded that. But it's inherent in some women as well. There are a lot of men that I'm discovering, you know, young men in our program and in college, college age, that are rejecting performance, you know, masculinity. It doesn't make them any less of a man. <laughs> you know, they're just rejecting that. So this is a lot of pressure to have to do, you know. And there's nothing wrong with it because, you know, again, you have to think about where the music came from, how it started, what, you know, culturally and historically, and, and a masculinity that was stripped of a lot of African-American men. And here's now this area in this stage that they can uh, perform it their own way and not, nobody can take it away from them. You take that into consideration as well. There's an understanding, you know, there. It's complex. Um, it's not simple. And nobody's saying that that needs to go away. But there's room for another aesthetic from both men and women. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of things like the M3 project that Jen Shu and Sarah Serpa put together where there's a different kind of what they call mutual mentorship between generations and people collaborate on things together. And it's a very different kind of model than the sort of the very toxic, if you would, toxic masculine model of, oh, this is my mentor and I got to eventually be better than him and cut him down and play faster, better, go the next step. But it's sort of a more kind of nurturing mm -hmm. environment, which I think could create better music, but above and beyond that, a better society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know much about their program. Um, I do know Jen, but I don't know much about their program. That is a term that's being used a lot more, mutual you know, mentoring. Uh, I saw it recently. That makes a lot of sense because that's what we do as teachers. I think the great teachers, you know, the good teachers, we learn as much from our students as we give to them. That's why I like teaching. I mean, I don't do anything. I don't get something out of it. I mean, for the most part. I mean, if I give something to somebody, I'm getting something out of it. I don't mean in a material way. You know, I mean, it feeds my soul to be giving, to be excited still, you know, about teaching is, of course, the desire for the music to continue and the desire to help somebody you know to see somebody's light bulb go off is, is really a great feeling but it's also just because i learn from them and this generation is very impressive this new program that we've just started that you've sort of spearheaded in vision for us at new music usa the next jazz legacy program mm -hmm. what do you hope we can do with this program well you know it really started because you know, through these conversations with Vanessa Reed, and I started really thinking about 
what's been the keys to my success. And if you use me or, or my career or trajectory or any of that as an example, I really started thinking how, how do we build a program where the things that just naturally fell into place for me and contributed so greatly to my success, how do we build something you know, with those things as part of the foundation of the program? And the first thing I thought of is the apprenticeships that I had with Clark Terry and Wayne Shorter people that you know gave me a chance when I wasn't even ready yet. Maybe they thought I was, but you know, in, look, in looking back, I think it was the potential that they saw. And how do we nurture potential? How do we uh, play a role in the development of before, you know, for the continuation of, of the music? And music will never reach its full potential unless we have this kind of gender equity. We haven't set an age limit yet. I mean, I don't know what the age is as far as mentors and apprentices. Like I started when I was 10. So at 40, I could probably really mentor somebody, you know, I'm 56 now, but I would have had 30 years of experience already by the time I was 40. So with jazz, it's hard to set those kinds of age limits, but um, thinking about how to match people, to give people the resources to develop their potential and how can we match the applicants, the mentees, with the right mentors and also in the right apprenticeships. I'm also, you know, I started thinking about so many things that's not taught at school because, you know, these, a lot of these people will maybe have graduated from college. And teaching at a college, I also see the things that aren't taught. There's so many areas to um, the music business that even if you read it in a book or you know, are taught through some kind of system, systematically taught some of these things, you're not going to understand it until you experience it. And so many of these things have so many variables. So I just you know, learned by you know, the school of hard knocks, mistakes, but mostly by being around people and trying to be a sponge and being around a lot of amazing people that taught me you know, that with, even without trying, just understanding, you know, what they were doing and watching and understanding. So I have a love-hate relationship with the word shortcuts because I, sometimes I think really there aren't shortcuts, but then if we can provide some shortcuts in certain areas, I think that's, that's amazing. You know, I hope that this program, you know, makes the path from A to B, you know, from college to whatever it is you're really supposed to be doing, you know, with your life and career, you know, making that path a little bit shorter. Because, I mean, the big thing is young women and, of course, also the, you know, transgender and non-binary community, people on the margins of what's been normal in jazz don't have as many opportunities. That's just, you know, the way it is. That's why, you know, that's why I keep referencing, you know, I had mine because it, which was still a patriarchal situation because it was my dad passing what he knew on to me. And most women, you know, just don't have those opportunities. I'm hoping that, you know, we're able to change a few lives, you know, some lives by providing opportunity that might have been more difficult for them to attain on their own. You know, because the problem has been too that women have had to pattern themselves after, after men. 
So you have so many women that in order to be successful, you know, like a Mary Lou Williams, had to um, be as good as the next guy and reject anything that puts you in the box of being a woman musician, a female musician. And, and you didn't hire women necessarily because, you know, that wasn't helping your cause. So that what that creates is uh, these exceptions. Women that are exceptional enough to play with all the men. And then like uh, the NPR article, uh, Lara Pellegrinelli article, that says, well, then what happens is you have all these exceptions at the top, right? So if you look at the top 10 and you say, oh, equity's getting there, you know, we have 40% of the winners of this poll, you know, the critics poll are women this year. But then if you look down, that's the top 10, but then if you look, this is just an example from 10 to 100, and the, that percentage is not there. So what happens is the exceptional women rise to the top, but you need to have equity on all those stages to, for true equity to be there. Uh, women shouldn't have to be the very best to make a living. I had to wake up to realities like that and really see the value in this and um, in, in what equity will look like. It will be filtered all the way through. One of the things you said that I think is important to all of this is these mentors that these younger musicians, female and non-binary musicians need can be women, but they could also be men. Oh, absolutely. The mentors need to be men <laughs> only because men need to participate in solving some of these issues. If women just mentor women, we're still siloed and uh, siphoned into a, you know, a, a bucket of women jazz musicians. And that's not the goal at all. That's why at our institute, you know, we have probably almost 50% men and women uh, with our students, but it's very easy for men to keep hiring other male players because there's a lot of them. So how do we get, you know, masterful male musicians to really actively participate in uh, gender justice in the music? And a lot of great male musicians, some even my mentors, have said, well, I'll hire a woman if she can play. And I'm challenging them, saying that's not enough. You know, what are you doing to help this woman that you'll hire if she can play, help her get to that next stage of, of being able to play on your level or, or be able to you know, share a stage with you? If you want to see gender equity in the field, then you have to actively do something because um, just expecting a woman that has not had the same opportunity as her male counterparts to come fully formed, then you're still part of the problem. I wanna see a world where we're beyond this and just to envision what that music sounds like. So a final thought is what might the music sound like in a world that has gotten past this problem. Funny, I just wrote a little essay for the Boston Globe and you know, basically was saying that I can't wait until the day comes where I don't have to write these. You know, when you know, we don't have to have Black History Month or Women's History Month because equity is just you know, in the fabric of our society. What will it sound like? I don't really spend a lot of time thinking 
about what it will sound like because I don't predict the future. I don't do that. I just do my best to help things evolve and roll with it. And I just remain curious. I'm curious about what it will sound like. I, I can't predict it, but I'm very curious. I predict it might sound something like social science. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, I just feel like uh, there is a world of sound waiting for us that hasn't, you know, necessarily fully been developed, fully tapped into within this genre. It's coming. It's getting closer. That brings us to the end of this installment of Sound Lives featuring Terry Lynn Carrington. But before we sign off, let's listen to a little bit more of her music. Here's a bit of Dreams and Desperate Measures, again from Terry Lynn Carrington's album Waiting Game with her group Social Science, available on LP, CD, and various download formats from Motema Music. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.